Well, since we have some children with us here today, I think we must have to start off with a children's song. So you have to sing with me if you know it. If you don't, that tells me that you never went to Sunday school or to Christian camp. Okay? Here it goes. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord right arm. You did know it. Okay, thank you. Well, you children, you, oh, Salea, I see you got that right arm out. Then you got to do left arm, right foot, left foot, and eventually you sit down. Now, we sing that song, but I'll bet you did not have any idea how much Father Abraham is a father. Let me tell you. There's really no question about this. We know when Abraham lived. 4,000 years ago, Abraham was alive. That is not, that is historically quite accurate. There's very little disagreement about that at all. A man named Abraham was alive in the year 2000 B.C., Moses, by the way, around 1500 B.C., David, 1000 B.C., 1000 years after Abraham. Um, Abraham lived in the present-day country of Iraq, not far from where today is Baghdad. That's where he was from originally. But he is the father of the Arab people in our world today. The Arab people in our world uh, number over 400 million people. They are the descendants of Abraham through his son Ishmael. So there are 420 roughly million people in our world today who say and could sing that song, Father Abraham had many sons and I am one of them. Those are the Arab peoples. But then of course, as you know, Abraham had another son. His son, this son's name is Isaac, because Abraham is not only the father of the Arab peoples, he's the father of the Jewish people. And of course, they threw Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and many others, including our Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't know exactly the number of Jewish people in our world. It's somewhere around 15 million people in our world today can sing that song. Father Abraham had many sons and I am one of the sons of Abraham. Well, it goes beyond that. Because as Christians, we acknowledge ourselves as the children of Abraham, not by physical descent as the Arab people and the Jewish people are, but through faith. We have been, the Bible says, grafted into the, the tree of Abraham. So, 2.3 billion people who claim to be Christians in our world can sing, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them. But it goes on beyond that. Because in Islam today, and that numbers about 1.9 billion people, they regard Abraham as their father of their religion. He was one of their prophets, so they believe, and a patriarch. And so he is mentioned many times in the Quran. So here's another 1.9 billion people who regard Abraham as their father. So if you want to do your math, we're way over 50% of all the people who have ever lived on this planet, ever, will say, Father Abraham had many sons and I am one of them. Every other person you see on this planet, anywhere you go on the planet, they would say that they are a descendant of Father Abraham. In fact, 
If you go online and say, who are the most important people that have ever lived? In the top five will be Father Abraham. And so we're dealing with a very, very, very significant person. And it's his story we're going to look at in Romans chapter 4 today. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me there to Romans chapter 4. Now, the, the Arab people regard Abraham as their biological father. The Jewish people regard Abraham as their biological father. The Muslim people regard Abraham as one of their spiritual fathers. We as Christians regard Abraham as our spiritual father. Well, this text of Scripture is going to show us that above all things, Abraham is the father of faith. It is his faith that sets him apart from basically all other human beings. His faith is among the most important aspects of that any person who has ever lived can demonstrate. So we're going to look at a person today who is one of the most famous people. And we're number now about 15 or 16 billion people who have lived on this planet. 16 billion and of all that number, and you can't even imagine how big that number is, of the top people who have ever lived is Father Abraham. That's pretty important. However, Abraham is variously regarded by different religious groups. You see, the Muslim people believe that he was a person who was one of the greatest people to show his submission to Allah. The Jewish people would tell you that Abraham was the one who obeyed the law of God even before it came. And that's what they would highlight about Abraham. But the Apostle Paul is going to say, you are wrong. You missed the story of the truth about Abraham. And I know that I'm right and I know that you're wrong because I'm going to show the scriptures and I'm even going to throw in a little bit of math to demonstrate to you that Abraham is not considered one of the greatest people who ever lived. Our father, not because of the goodness of his life, not because of the significance of his religious acts, and it's not because he followed any law of God. That is not what sets him apart. What sets Abraham apart is he is the father of faith. So our topic today is going to be the faith of Abraham. And what the Apostle Paul is going to do with his impeccable logic is he's first of all going to show what is Abraham like with regard to good works. And so our first section, you're going to look for the repetition of the word works. It's going to happen over and over and over again. In the second section, he's going to highlight the Apostle Paul, Abraham and circumcision. Over and over and over and over and over and over again, in a few verses, he's going to talk about circumcision. Circumcision was the religious rite by which a Jew became a member of the covenant family of God. He's going to speak about Abraham and circumcision. And then thirdly, he's going to speak about Abraham and the law. The word that you will see repeated over and over again is law, 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 law. And then he's going to turn to us, we who are the children of Abraham, and he's going to sum it up with us. So this is what chapter 4 of Romans is about. All about Father Abraham. First of all, Abraham and good deeds. Then Abraham 
and circumcision, then Abraham and following the law, and then Abraham and us. That's the outline. Let's start with the first part. The first part is Abraham and good deeds. Now, um, Abraham, as you can imagine, as I've just talked, said, is one of the greatest people that have ever lived. Perhaps, apart from Jesus and a couple others, he's the greatest human being who's ever lived. That's high praise. That's incredible. And in Jewish writings, they have said through the years various things about Abraham. And so, let me read some of them to you. Here's one from the Jewish writing called Jubilees. Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord. This is from the prayer of Manasseh. Abraham, who did not sin against God. Pick up these words. This one is from the Maccabees. Was not Abraham found faithful when tested, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness? And this one is from the Ecclesiasticus. Abraham observed the law of the Most High God. And according to Muslims, Abraham is the archetype of the perfect Muslim. Now, did you see what all these had in common? They cite the fact that Abraham's, the significance was of Abraham was the goodness of the life he lived. And by the way, you probably know all religions in the world, with the exception of Christianity, to my knowledge, state that the way you, be, you get, attain right standing with God is by the goodness of the life you live. That's how you get right with God. And so throughout history, the Jewish people and the Muslim people have said, what sets Abraham apart is the goodness of his life. Let's see what the Apostle Paul has to say about that. This is Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, if a person, if you see a person and you, you say to them, and they say, oh, they're a really good person. They should be right with God. Well, you might be right with human beings because there are people who are very good among us. And hopefully some of us are among that group. But there's some people, the goodness of their life just sticks out over and over again. And those people have a right to boast before us. But before God, it's a joke. The greatest human being that's ever lived, the greatest about of moral goodness that have ever lived is a joke before God. The Bible says all of our righteous acts are as filthy rags. You see, God's standard is so incredibly high. Our standards are so incredibly low. According to our standards, there are many people who are good. <laughs> but that's a joke with God. Because God's standard is not one whit less than absolute perfection. He can never go lower than that. Never. In fact, Jesus said, remember, this is what God says. This is your standard. Be perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect. That's your standard. So anyone who lives a good life, we can live on, on this earth and think we're doing really well, but before God, it's an absolute joke. 
No one can possibly do that. But then it says, Abraham then, or Paul now quotes what is probably, I'm almost going to say the most important verse in the Bible. That sounds strange. You might think it's John 3.16. But many people would say this is the most important verse in the Bible that Paul just quoted. It's not in Romans. It's in Genesis. Here's the story. God somehow communicated to this Iraqi, this guy in Iraq named Abram, that he was supposed to get up and go to a land that God would show to him. And so what did he do? He did it. God says, that's it. He's in. He's in. What did he do? He trusted God, that's all. He took God at his word. That's all he did. And the word then means credited. That's a mathematical term taken from accounting. God then put into his account, not his good works, put into his account, he's righteous. He stamped it, he's righteous. What did he do? Nothing. He took God at his word. And Paul says, that's what it is all about. Don't you see? What is God is looking for is people who will take him according to his word. It's not Abram's good deeds that gets him into heaven. Look at the next verses. This is verses 4 and 5. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, that is stunning. No one yelped when I read those verses. It means you're half asleep. Not completely asleep yet. You're just half there. Don't you see what I just read? You should have screamed. No one screamed. Who declares innocent the wicked? Don't you see what that means? What would we do with any judge anywhere in the history of the world who st someone stands before them flat out guilty of a terrible, terrible crime and they go, innocent. What would you do? That judge would be finished that moment and never ever allowed to judge again. You do not justify wicked people. You condemn wicked people. But it says, God justifies, that means declares innocent, the wicked. He doesn't declare not guilty. He declares innocent the guilty. Not, no, not the guilty, the wicked. He could have said, oh, he declares, just, he justifies the, those who miss a little bit. You know, the, 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 go, the people who commit a boo-boo here and there. It's not what he says. He justifies Wicked people. Who are wicked people? Rebels. People who sin flat out, knowing exactly what they're doing wrong. He justifies the wicked. That's an astounding verse. In fact, that's a troublesome verse. Because over and over again in the, in the Bible, it says God is just. God does not justify wicked people. But here it says he justifies the wicked. How can he do this? Well, that's the genius of the gospel. That's the genius of Jesus. But did you see, Paul says, if you could work for your salvation, 
your salvation is earned as a wage. But if we're given salvation by God's grace, that is not earned. That's a gift. Now, Abraham got his salvation not because he earned it, but because God was gracious. And by the way, Abraham was not sinless. The Bible tells us in, in, in Joshua that Abraham probably was a worshiper of idols back in Ur, where he grew up. The Bible tells us that twice he lied through his teeth and tried to pawn off his wife as if he was, she was his sister. That's not right to do that. He, and, 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 and he did that to save his own skin. And when he did that, it caused a famine and almost called someone to lose their life. It's pretty serious stuff. Um, he, um, he then slept with his handmaid, Hagar, who gave rise, of course, to Ishmael, resulting in a conflict that has been going hot, super hot, for 4,000 years straight now. We saw it in the last few weeks. That's what his sin did to us. You see, and then he got rid of his son Ishmael, which he didn't want to do, but his wife kind of forced him to because he had a family mess to deal with. This is our father Abraham. You see, he was not a, a, a sinless guy at all. He had plenty of flaws. But that's not what he's all about. His righteousness was credited to him by God's goodness. Now, if you think Abraham got away with murder... <laughs> What about a real murderer? Now he turns to David. Look at the next verses. Verses 6 through 8. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Quote, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Now, Moses was a pretty, I mean, um, Abraham was a pretty good dude. David was a, ooh, not so much. David is an adulterer. David is a first degree murderer. David is a cover up artist. David is a terrible father. And I can go on and on. David was a mess, a royal mess. We know that. And yet he's the only person in the whole Bible who's called the man after God's own heart. So obviously God's not looking for a perfect track record. Why not? Well, the good reason is if, he, if God was looking for good track records to bring us to heaven, he would get precisely no one. The Trinity could enjoy eternity forever with no one else because we wouldn't get there. David was a real screw-up. And he's the one who God says, this is the man whose heart most resembles mine. What? What did he have? Well, one, we know David was honest with his sin after he was confronted. His heart was tender toward God. And he wrote this incredible Psalm 32, which was quoted by Paul. It's got a word play. David says this. He says, when I covered my sin... You, God, worked hard to uncover it. But when I uncovered my sin to you, when I confessed it, what did you do? You covered it. It's a beautiful word play. You cover up your sin, God's working against you to uncover it. You uncover your sin, God's going to work to cover it, to forgive you. 
That's what David said. That's what David knew. And he had plenty of sin to co- to, for God to cover. Plenty of it. Well, justification is by faith. Justification by faith eliminates all boasting. Just seeking to justify any human being is entirely unimpressive to God. God is not impressed. If, if human beings, if we could work our way to God, then God's grace would not be needed. Justification by faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus allows God to justify wicked people without compromising his character. That's amazing. King David is an incredibly good example of a wicked man who God justified by faith. Justification by faith is completely consistent with the teaching of both the Old and the New Testament, and it means that God will not count our sins against us. Instead, in the column, he writes, innocent. You see, justification by faith doesn't change our basic nature, but it does change our perception of our nature. Justification by faith does not change our moral status, but it does change our legal status before God. For example, when a child is adopted, it does not change who they are morally, but it does change who they are legally. That's what justification has done for us. Justification by faith does not change the temporal consequences of our sin. We still have to pay for our sin on this earth but it does change the eternal consequences of our sin. And that is huge. Justification by faith does not so much change our morality as much as it changes our motivation. Why we do what we do. It's God's brilliant, brilliant move. Well, he turns from the word works to now the word circumcision. As I read the next passage, Romans chapter 4, verses 9 to 12, Notice how many times you see the word circumcision. Circumcision for the Jewish people is the most important religious rite in their existence. It is the sign, the symbol, that a Jewish person is part of the covenant family of God. For us, the similar symbol is baptism. A similar religious rite is communion. And many other things we do traditionally as Christians and Jewish people did. Let's see what Paul says about, Mo, about Abraham and circumcision. Here it goes. And by the way, the key to this is math. It sounds strange, but you'll see why. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness that he had been by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised, but who walk in the footsteps of the faith 
that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So the Apostle Paul is simply doing his math. He says, okay, when did God say that Abraham was declared righteous in God's sight? Genesis chapter 15. And when was it that Abraham was circumcised? Genesis chapter 17. When Abraham was declared righteous in Genesis 15, how old was he? 86 years old. We know that. How old was Abraham when he was circumcised? 99 years old. So, Paul says, do your math, Jewish people. Do your math. Abraham was declared righteous in God, righteous before God, 13 or 14 years before he was circumcised. So, circumcision cannot be essential for salvation. It can't be. It's impossible. It is a sign of salvation. It is a sign of righteousness. But it is not that which makes you righteous. It is not the circumcision that brought Abraham into the right standing with God. It was his faith. Do you see how important the math is? You see, justification by religious rites, R-I-T-E-S, is wrong. It's wrong. It's not right at all. Um, today, th there are many people, it's very common among us as Christians, and it's so sad. A person will say, hey, I was baptized an infant. I got a pass. I'm going to heaven. Or I, I was baptized here at First Baptist Church. I, I, you know, that's, I'm saved. Or I, I went to confirmation class, and the church told me I was confirmed in my faith. Uh, uh, that's what saves me. Paul would say, no, no, no. No, those are simply signs. Those are symbols. That is not what saves you. It's your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did when he died on the cross for your sins and was raised again from the dead. That's what saves you. But do you see, our problem is, as, as religious people, we often place our faith in the symbols, in the rites, in the rituals. But that's wrong. Paul says, no, Abraham taught us that it is our trust in God's promises that's the essence of our salvation, not any rituals that we go through. No, please no. Well, remember, he started with good deeds, he moved to circumcision, and now the next word you're going to see repeated over and over again is the word law. Because now he's going to uh, cite what the Jewish people for years to this very day are saying. The essence of being in right standing before God is following God's law. And particularly, not breaking God's laws. That's the essence. Do you want to stand right before God? Here's how you do it. Don't break the commandments. Here's what the Babylonian Talmud said. This is a Jewish writing. Quote, We find that Abraham, our father, had performed the whole law. Baloney. Absolute baloney. But you see the essence there? This is how you get right standing before God. You don't break the law. Well, let's see what Paul says. 
This is verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath. What's interesting, by the way, just to stop for a moment, when you think about law for a minute, because um, Myron asked about breaking the laws, um, laws punish, but laws don't reward. Um, when was the last time you were driving below the speed limit, just practicing all the rules, rules of the road, and a police officer pulled you over and gave you a citation for goodness? When did that last happen to you? Well, it has never happened. Law does not bring good things. It's only when you break a law that you get bad consequences. That's the nature of law. Law does not reward, law punishes. We don't have laws that reward people. Well, here's what he goes, says again. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. What that means, the word transgression means um, when you have a line and you cross a line. It, it's interesting. If, you, if in any place you put a line and you ask people where to stand, where does everyone stand? Within one 52nd of an inch from the line. That's what law does. And if you go over it, you broke. That's transgression. Transgression means you go over the line. Now, if you have no line, what can you not have? There's no transgression because there's no line. Now, let's do our math again. This is not math. This is chronology. Abraham, as I told you, lived 2000 B.C., the law of God came through Moses. We don't know exactly when Moses was alive. We know when Abraham was alive and we know when David was alive. There are kind of disputes on the age of Moses. But let's say roughly 1500 BC. So the whole point is, Abraham could not be justified by law because he preceded the law by at least 550 years. So you can't say, well, Abraham, he didn't break the law of God. That's why he had right standing before God, because that's absolutely chronologically ridiculous. It's not possible. There was no law. There was the Noahic law, but there was not the Mosaic law. There wasn't any such thing. So in verse 16, he goes on. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Now, Abraham's faith was incredible. I mean, it says, this, the real miracle, by the way, is not Abraham. The mir real miracle is Sarah. Um, he was uh, 100 years old. She was 90. I don't know that we have any 90-year-olds giving birth to babies. Now, old, old men, we got a few, a, bunch, a few of those. But we don't have women that old who, have, who give birth to children. So, Abram, when God made this promise, he believed that God was able to raise the dead. A dead womb. 
he could bring to life. That's a lot of faith. That's crazy faith. But God made the promise. And God had shown himself faithful to his promises all the way to this point in Abram's life. So he said, I believe you. I don't know where this could come from. The only way you can have, this can happen is if, if you're a God who can bring life out of death. That's the only way it can happen. There's no other way. Now he tried an alternative route. And as I said, it's resulted in 4,000 years of fighting to this very day. He took the wrong route, but now he decided I'm going to take God's route. Here's what it says, verse 18. Against all hope, because by the way, this is ridiculous. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. And by the way, as Christians, what is the center of the center of the center of our faith? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The basic core of our faith, the, the, the center of the center of the center is the resurrection of Jesus. That's it. So basically, we are like Abraham. We are people who believe and we have, we have placed our lives on the line that God can raise the dead. That's who we are. I guess we're nuts. Why did I say we're nuts? Because I just quote Mark Twain. Mark Twain said, Faith is believing what you know ain't so. This is Bertrand Russell, the great atheist. Faith is a conviction that cannot be shaken by contrary evidence. You see, in our world today, faith means superstition, it means credulity, naivete, irrationality. But that's not faith. This is John R. W. Stott. He said this way, Faith is a reasoning trust, a trust which reckons thoughtfully and confidently upon the trustworthiness of God. Faith is taking God at his, at his word. One of the most intelligent people who have ever lived on this planet is Blaise Pascal. He's a French mathematician, physicist, inventor, philosopher, theologian. He wrote this. Belief is a wise wager. Granted that faith cannot be proved, what harm will come to you if you gamble on its truth and it proves false? If you gain you gain all. If you lose, you lose nothing. Wager then without hesitation that he exists. It's called Pascal's wager. He said, let's just be a betting person. If you bet that the Bible is true and it's false, you've lost some, but not much. But if you bet that the Bible is false and it's true, 
you lose everything. So if you're a betting person, if you're going up to the, the casino up here, you better bet on Jesus. If you're a betting person, you'd be wise to do so. Well, finally he brings it home, and this is how he ends. Here's what it goes. This is verses 23 to 25. The words, it was credited to him, were not written for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Tony Evans, the pastor in the Dallas area, said this, What Abraham saw only in shadows and hints, we see fully. We know that the object of our faith is Jesus our Lord who was raised from the dead. Abraham trusted the power of God to bring life from a seemingly dead situation. We have seen the power of God to bring life from the literal death of his son. Well, Father Abraham, he's a pretty important guy. What he taught us, first of all, is that our right standing with God comes by faith. It is not a result of the goodness of our lives. No. It is not the result of our religious rituals. No. It is not the result of keeping God's law or not breaking God's law. No. It's based on our trust in the promises of a God who said that he can raise the dead. And guess what? He did it. He did it well. In 1947, there was a rumor that spread around this country. The rumor was that the Ford Motor Company would give a free Ford automobile in exchange for every copper penny dated 1943. The rumor spread so fast that the Ford offices throughout the country were jammed with thousands of requests for information. The U.S. Mint also received large volume of inquiries, but it all turned out to be a hoax. The statistics in the Mint show that in 1943, there were over one billion pennies minted from steel and zinc. But due to a copper sword shortage, the number of copper pennies was exactly zero. There had been a rumor abroad, there has been a rumor abroad in the human race for centuries that entrance into heaven can be obtained by good works. But it likewise is a hoax. The fact is, there are no works made on earth that are acceptable in heaven. All our works are tainted by sin. The only righteousness that gains entrance to heaven is the righteousness of Jesus Christ graciously offered to sinners who believe in him. That's not a hoax. Let's pray. Oh, we thank you, Father, for Father Abraham. What lessons he has taught us. Your word is incredible. I can't get over that, that you justify wicked people.
Because in truth, if we know our hearts, we know we fit into that category. And you make us right with God, the Father. How do you do it? I don't know, Jesus. It's amazing. What an offer. What a gift. What a privilege. I pray that we here in this place would just revel in the glory of being the recipients of your grace because it's really incredible. As we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. Oh, please stand with me now. And um, I, in our benediction, let me quote, as I've done before, the, a, a song. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Amen.